First John chapter two, beginning in verse seven, John writes, brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The context of this entire passage is the great theme of the book, fellowship with God and fellowship with each other. Remember why John wrote this letter in broadest terms to reassure Christians in their faith and to counter false teaching and to answer the question, what does it mean to be a believer? John gives a moral or a character test in verses 1 through 6. Has your life been changed by the gospel? Now he's going to offer a brand new test. It's a test that deals with your relationship with each other. He is going to ask and hopefully have the answer, what is it that you do to one another? Do you love one another? And after this, John is going to give a doctrinal test. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What do you believe about salvation? John understands that love is both a test, but it also serves as evidence that you have a right relationship with God. But not only is it a test, and not only does it serve as evidence, but it provides a mechanism of protection. To keep you from darkness. John has already reminded us that the true believer commits to obeying God in verse 3. And now the true believer has a deep and sincere love for fellow believers in verses 7 through 10. So how do we take this moral test? We obey the Lord. We obey Christ. Remember how we took the moral test. It is asking and answering the question, when I received Christ as my Savior, did he change my life? Did he fundamentally, profoundly, internally, and eternally change me? How do we take the relational test? We love each other. We might think about this in terms of being loyal in fellowship to one another. This isn't just something you say, hey, oh, love you. Love you, dude. It isn't just throwing out some sort of phrase. Although I got to be honest with you, I love it when my wife says, I love you. When my children say, Dad, I love you. When my grandchildren, they don't normally talk, they just kiss me and that's all I need. Just, just give me some kisses, I'll be fine. 
But, but you understand, it's not just words that you're, you're saying. It's, it's loyalty and fellowship. And, and this is part of the point that is going to be made. It's, not, it's loyalty and fellowship in the sense that you love being with the saints. You love ministering to one another, encouraging one another, praying for one another. It was the historian Arnold Joseph Toynbee who said, quote, love is the only spiritual power that can overcome self-centeredness that is inherent in being alive. Love is the thing that makes life possible, indeed tolerable, unquote. Daniel Wheeler, speaking of Jesus, said, quote, His love enables me to call every country my country and every man my brother, unquote. It's the kind of love that causes you to look beyond nationality and ethnic predisposition. It's the kind of love that understands, recognizes that you're made in the image of God and you're worthy of respect. Augustine noted, quote, he who is filled with love is filled with God himself, unquote. Love is expressed in our attitude in verses 3 through 5, in our actions in verse 6, in our affection in verses 7 through 10. And so we begin with the essence of love. Look at verse 7, brethren. I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you heard from the beginning. The word translated brethren, I think, is a little misleading, and let me tell you why. If you're familiar with other languages, if we say brother, or in Spanish, if we say hermanos, in, in the Spanish culture, they have a word that says carnal, which is a word that means like flesh and blood, that you're sort of linked to one another. Here, the word in the Greek language is agapetoi. It's the people who are loved. So this word, brethren, really means those of you who are loved. I think that the right translation is beloved. But somehow in our culture and society, beloved has lost its meaning. It, it seems like a word that's so religious and so distant, it, but it is a word that was, that was used of affectionate relationship. And the reason why this is important is because this is the first of six times that John will use that phrase. He'll repeat it in chapter 3, verse 2, again in verse 21, in chapter 4, verse 1, and again in verse 7 of chapter 4, and again in verse verse 11. But again, it gives us an idea. He's writing to a group of people that he cares deeply about. I'm trying to think of a word that would capture it. It's, it's a word that reeks of affection. The word love doesn't appear in the verse except in that opening word agapetoi and we don't see the word until verse 10 but we know that when John says brethren I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment which you've heard from the beginning we know that John is talking about the commandment of love 
There's nothing new about the commandment of love. Earlier, John has said that the true believer will keep the commandments and towering over all of the commandments is this imperative to love. And there are many good reasons to love each other. John will give us three because the Lord God said we should do this in verses 7 through 11. And later in the book, in 1 John chapter 3, verses 10 through 24, he'll say, there's another good reason why you should love each other because we've been born of God. And the moment that you've been born of God and you've been born of God, then you reflect and carry the nature of God. You've been born of God and God's love lives inside of you. And it was never meant to be by itself. And then the third reason that he gives is because God first revealed his love to us in in chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. And so when he says the commandment is, is old and new, you might read that and you might think, well, isn't this a contradiction? How can something be old and new? Well... In this sense, love isn't new and neither is the command. Jesus combines two Old Testament commandments in Deuteronomy chapter 6 verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. In Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That's re-quoted in Mark chapter 12 verses 28 through 34. And these have what we might call a summation and a distillation of the entire revelation that's been given by God throughout the Old Testament. If you were to just simply try and boil down in a single sentence what God had to say in the Old Testament, it could be boiled down to those two things. Loving God. Loving your neighbor. This would have been something absolutely familiar to the Jew. So in what sense is love one another new? Well, in one sense, Jesus called the commandment new because he determined to interpret it and apply it in a fresh way. You see, in our culture and society, we use different words or maybe the same word. Let me give you an example. Imagine I came to you and I said, I just got a new car. What is it that you think that I just got? Is a new car fresh off the assembly line with zero on the mileage gauge? The tires have never really turned. It has that new car smell. For some of you, you might think that's what's new. But imagine you got a 1995 Honda Accord with 178,000 miles. And you go, that doesn't sound new to me. But it's new because it's newer than your 1978 Volkswagen Rabbit that has a half a million miles on it. So there's new and then there's new to me. And this is the word that he's using, new to me, in the sense of fresh. We've been changed. So how is it new? It's new in the sense that it hearkens the reader back to the beginning of the very gospel that was preached from the beginning. And that is God loves you and Jesus loves you. Your sin has separated you from God. But God cares deeply about you. 
The sense seems to be that when the gospel was preached in the first century, it always carried with it this idea of love. So John hearkens the reader back to the beginning. He's basically saying, go back to the beginning and everything that you heard from the beginning concerning the apostles, you're going to discover it to be true. The believer's heart has been transformed and filled with the love of God. We've experienced the love of Jesus. We've been changed by that love. And so we share that love with others who have been changed by that love. Even those who have not been changed by that love, we decide that we're not willing to just simply keep the love to ourselves. We have to express it to anyone and everyone who's willing to experience what we've experienced. And so he talks about the example of love in verse 8. In verse 8 he says, again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him and in you? Because the darkness is passing away. And the true light is already shining. In what way is this new? Again, a new commandment I write to you. In what way is it new? Jesus didn't simply teach his disciples to love one another. Jesus lived out that love in his own life and in his own ministry. He doesn't just simply invite his disciples to love each other. He invites you to consider his life and how he will live his very real life. His teaching and his life and his character epitomize that love. I know most of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you have a chance, you might just turn over there. And as you turn over there and remember Paul's famous chapter, he pictures the character of love. And as he, as he talks about the character of love, he talks about, well... When he says, though I speak with the tongue of men and of angels and have not love, I've become a sounding brass or a clanging symbol. He talks about all of the things that love does. Love suffers long in verse 4 and is kind. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't parade itself or isn't puffed up. And most of you have already heard the idea of, well, try sticking your name in there. As you stick your name in there and ask, is this true of you? Well, guess what? It's absolutely true of Jesus. Jesus suffers long, Luke twenty two forty four. Jesus is kind, Luke 10, 33. Jesus is content. He doesn't envy anyone, Luke twenty two forty two. Jesus is self-abasing love. That means love that doesn't puff itself. It doesn't exalt itself. It doesn't... doesn't Focus on the self and then exalt the self. So Jesus' love is humble and wise and unselfish and patient. Jesus' love isn't suspicious, thinks no evil. Jesus' love is holy and truthful. It's a redeeming love and a bearing love and an expecting love, a trusting love, an enduring love, an unchanging love. And so again, it isn't just simply an invitation to have warm, fuzzy feelings about someone else. It's an invitation to consider Jesus and what Jesus has done. And as you consider that, John makes this statement. The love of God was true in Jesus. 
And so he's saying, the love of God is true in you. Why does he connect those dots? The love of God is true in Jesus. Jesus is in you. Therefore, the love of God in Jesus has to be true in you. Look what he says. Again, a new commandment I write to you. Which thing is true in him? The love of God is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is passing away. What does that mean? What in the world is he talking about? I'm going to suggest to you that it means the light of the gospel. The truth about the message of God. That God loves you. That sinners can have a right relationship with God. That the wickedness and the evil and the darkness that has poisoned and blinded people is passing away. In what sense? Jesus is the light. True. The gospel is true. True. But has everyone received Jesus? No. Has everyone believed the gospel? No. The darkness is passing away little by little, moment by moment. When you receive Christ as your Savior, the New Testament said that you left the kingdom of darkness and you went into the kingdom of light. You left the kingdom of death and you went into the kingdom of life. And the darkness receded and the light came and the darkness receded and the light came and the darkness receded and the light came. That's what this means. This is why John can write with confidence that the darkness is passing away. Because the true light has arrived and is shining at this very moment. And everyone who knows him and loves him and believes him and has experienced this. So the sinner turns from darkness and embraces the light and not just any light. Look what it says at the end of verse 8. And the true light. The word here translated true is an important word. It's a word that means more than true in, in opposite of that which is false. The contrast, remember, is between the true believer and the false believer. And so here, it means true as opposed to that which is false, but it even means more. The contrast is in its application. The truth of the message, the truth of Jesus, the truth of what is accomplished. And so John's going to make these contrasts. True believer, false believer, love and the absence of love. The presence of light and the absence of light. Real Christians experience the presence of love. Real Christians experience the presence of light. This is in stark contrast to those who have gone away out of the believing assembly. And this is, he's going to make even clearer 
towards the end of this book when he says, they went out from among us because they were never of us. The believer is able to love. The believer is able to maintain fellowship with God and then maintain fellowship with each other. God loves us, the Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 8. You see, at just the right time, Paul writes, when we were all powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Paul writes, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might even possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus comes, lives, and dies not at the moment where humanity deserves his presence or deserves God's attention. It was in the midst of rebellion, disobedience, blindness. And so now he's going to talk about the experience of love in verses 9 and 10. Look what he says. He who says he's in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. We shouldn't be shocked or surprised that John decides to contrast the love that is false and the love that is true. Most of you have had the experience of someone saying to you, I love you. And it was true or it wasn't. They may or they may not have tried to convince you they may or may not have been persuasive. But John is going to draw a dramatic contrast between light and darkness, between love and hate. He's going to talk about the affections that people have for God and the affections that they have for the world. And so the person who claims light in verse 7, remember in chapter 1, verse 7, but if we walk in the light as he's in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. So there's a person who can say, they can claim that they're in the light. So John confronts them. You say you're in the light. then how in the world can you embrace darkness? In John's view, in John's view, if a person walks continuously, repeatedly, and unrepentantly in darkness, his view is that they never came to the light. Living in the light requires living in love. It requires Believing the gospel and living in love. If it means believing the gospel and living in love. Then that means that the person's mind is changed and their heart is changed. And love is expressed in sacrifice and in service. We know that from John 15, 13. And selfless giving in Matthew 5, 43. Love unites us and then love identifies us. But John anticipates the person reading this and asking the question, well, what if a person says, I'm in the light? 
You've all had it happen. Hey, wait a minute. I'm a Christian. I'm a Christian. I'm not a gravy-sucking pig, heathen dog, pagan. I'm a Christian. I'm in the light. Here's the question. Do we take their word for it? Good answer. That is, that is excellent. She's right. She was unafraid to say what you all knew to be true. John says, you don't take their word for it. Has their life been changed? Do they love? Do they believe the truth? I want you to think about this for for a moment. John doesn't take their word for it. John wants to know if it's really true. Is it really true? Has your life been changed by the gospel? And now, remember, he applies the test of love and loyalty and fellowship to God and to one another. Why is this important? Because light and darkness are metaphors for what you already know. Love and hate. Truths and lies. This makes a profession or a confession of faith not just something that you claim but it's evidenced by your change of heart and your change of attitude, your change in how you conduct yourself. By the way, it seems awful that I have to define the word hate, but I do. Particularly in a culture and a society that despises hate speech. He's a hater. The Bible says God's a hater of sin. God loves you, and he hates sin, and he despises that which is evil. Hate means to detest or abhor. It may have an emotional component. It may include an attitude that causes one group of people to ignore another group of people or despise or treat someone like an enemy. In the Bible, hatred is linked to darkness. And blindness. The person who hates refuses to grant the same forgiveness or mercy desired for oneself. Most people say, if you ask them the question, what do you want from God? They'll say, I want mercy. Well, what do you want for that person? Judgment. So you want mercy for yourself and judgment for them. Well, yeah. And so John's trying to help people think it through. They don't see the light of God's truth. They stumble with the truth. They're unable to enjoy fellowship with God or with each other. One Bible writer said, by their own choice, hateful people make themselves spiritually handicapped and morally disabled. Do you know or do you claim to know God's truth as one in the light 
then love and accept fellow Christians, unquote. But for the person who says, Christ I love, the Bible I believe, it's Christians who give me the creeps. And I got to tell you something. It makes perfect sense to me that people can come to that conclusion. But John is begging you and begging me not to come to that conclusion. There were already groups of people who rejected the teachings of the apostles. They rejected John. They rejected the gospel. And they embraced foreign and false views. Most scholars believe that John is writing to a group of people who in antiquity were known as the Gnostics. And the Gnostics had a deep hatred and suspicion of those who clinged to their Bible and their guns. The Gnostics had a deep hatred for those who believed that God's word was true. They had a deep suspicion of people who read their Bible and believed biblical revelation. The Gnostics used words like darkness and light in most of their conversations. The Gnostics' favorite phrases included, how do you know that the Bible's true? How do you know that the testimony of the apostles are true? Another favorite expression that they had was this, oh, that's just your interpretation. The Gnostics believed that they and they alone could truly understand God. That they and they alone understood the message of Christ and the mission of Christ. They saw Jesus as a person who revealed secret knowledge and freed people from ignorance. The Gnostics didn't focus on Jesus as the savior from sin. They believed God was distant and unknowable. In their worldview, there was this prime mover, pure spirit who created another spirit, which created another spirit, which created another spirit, which created another spirit, ad nauseum, ad infinitum, until there arose a spirit that was so distant from the original spirit that it forgot the real God, and then that's the God that created the heavens and the earth. That matter was evil and corrupt, The Gnostics believed that spirit was divine and that the material universe at best was evil or at best was an illusion and at worst was corrupt and evil. And so the Gnostics divided humanity into three great groups. The spiritual who were saved because they believed the Gnostic doctrine And that human behavior didn't play an important role in salvation. In other words, if you understood and recognized that in your body it didn't really matter what you did did in your body. That it was your spirit that was important. So they gave themselves permission to live lives of sexual expression. And they felt absolutely free to despise anyone who didn't agree with them. Then there were the soulish. 
Again, these are people who could be saved if they followed the Gnostic path. And then there were the carnal, who were inherently lost. And people who embraced historical biblical Christianity were usually in that last category. And do you know what was the honored symbol of the Gnostic? It was a snake. I know most of you are going, well, that should tell you right off the bat that there's something weird about these people. If their bumper sticker is a snake and the caption reads, do whatever you want, it doesn't matter. They would have fit absolutely, positively, comfortably in the world in which you live. And so in verse 10, John says, he who loves his brother abides in the light and there's no cause for stumbling in him. He who loves his brother, this is love not simply acting as a proof of spiritual life, Although it is that, this is the kind of love that proves that you have a right relationship with God in Christ, but it also serves as a present prevention for causing offense. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. In what sense? The person who abides, lives, dwells in the gospel, in the love of Jesus, eliminates abuse and offense Stumbling is another word for offense. But the word in the original language is even stronger. It's a word that you'll know when I say it. The root word is scandalon. You know what that word means. We ditch lawn and we just simply say scandal. If something is scandalous, what in the world does that mean? You know what it means. It means to offend, to stumble. One Bible writer wrote, love prevents scandals. And I think that that's exactly right. Love as it's defined in the Bible. Love as it's meant and expressed in the person of Jesus as it's recorded in the Bible. Leroy Lauren, who said that, argues that love prevents the scandals of divisions and quarrels and contentions among Christians. It's hard. It's really, really difficult to stay mad at people when you love them and you care about them. If you're a parent, you know that with your children. If you're a grandparent, you know that with your grandchildren. You know, one of the most difficult things in the world for me to say to my grandchildren is, no! Come here, Grandpa still loves you and he's going to kiss you. But the answer is no! That's part of the point. But something else deserves our attention. And that is, remember what all these tests are focused on. Remember what I've said to you? A heart that's been transformed by the truth. 
love, doctrine. But all of the tests focus on the Lord Jesus in what way? I want you to think about this for a minute. It's a life that's been changed by Jesus. It's a love that's been given by Jesus. It's a doctrine or teaching or belief system that's been imparted by Jesus. Our life is changed by Jesus. Our love is Christ's love. Our doctrine is Christ's doctrine. So we have to ask the question that none of us want to ask, but we, some of us need to know the answer. And that is, why is it so stinking hard to love the people that God's asked you to love? Why is it so hard? See, if we're, if we're willing to be honest with us, do you think it's a surprise to God? Do you think God is in heaven going, I had no idea that you felt about him that way. I had zero idea that you felt that way about that man, that woman, that person, that pastor. God knows. God knows the truth. Law makes us act out of duty. An outward compulsion. But love makes us serve from an inward compassion. I know most people think that mothers get up in the morning because I'm your mom, I have to give you breakfast. But most moms don't act that way. Most mothers act because they really love their children. They don't fake it, they really love their children. It's natural to love those that love us. It is supernatural to love those who hate us. And remember, 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 you're going to get confused and you're going to be disappointed if you think that love is a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in this pit of your stomach and makes you talk like some phony Christian. That's not what love is. Love is a willingness to think and act and speak in a way that's in the best interest of the person that you love. That's what the Bible means by that. It's a willingness to act, speak, think, behave in that person's best interest. And you see, the reason why that becomes an important definition is because if your husband is drunk or your wife is drunk and they want to drive with the grandkids down the road, is it a loving thing to take the keys away from them? Who knows the answer to that? I hope you know that the answer is yes. They, they might go, you hate me because you won't let me drive drunk. When you're sober, we'll have a conversation, but right now we're not going to have that conversation. You see, it is, it is loving. It is loving to point people to Jesus, to invite them to honor the Lord. And so he will conclude with the evaporation of love in verse 11. Look, look what it says. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. 
If light is a metaphor for truth, if light is a metaphor for the gospel, if light is a metaphor for the expression of the revelation of God in Christ, darkness is the opposite of all of those things. Hatred is always possible when you step out of the light. When you are standing in the light, the chances are you're going to be safe. What happens when you take one step away from the gospel, one step away from Christ, one step away from love? You become vulnerable. Love does not simply serve as proof of life. It serves as prevention of hatred. So what about the person who seems to live in a constant state of anger? They're always angry. They're always bitter. They're always disappointed. They're always dark. They're always self-absorbed. What about the person who gives himself or herself permission to abuse others, mistreat others? John says that this person walks in darkness. Now, he uses that word very simply, but very specifically, because walk is something that you do on an ongoing basis. It describes a pattern of behavior or an ongoing problem. When it comes to God and when it comes to Christ, this person is in the dark. This person is a taker, not a giver. This person's focus is on self, pleasure, passions. This person rarely takes stock of what it means to treat people with respect. This person lacks direction. How do we know? Because they're blinded. They're blinded. The person is guided. I want you to think about this. If you're guided by self, if you're guided by comfort, if you're guided by pleasure, if you're guided by possession, if you're guided by protection, this person might think, I don't hate my neighbor. Just make sure he doesn't get in my way. See, we laugh, but you understand what's going on. No, I don't hate my neighbor. I don't hate you. Just don't get in my way. Is that a lover or a hater? What's the price? A blindness, bitterness, self absorption, conceit, pride. It consumes its host. Later, John's going to point out anyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you're well aware that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. Most people who hate you, they won't literally try to kill you. They'll try to conduct themselves in such a way that they would pretend like you don't even exist anymore. The terrorists who killed over 100 Parisians last Friday, if they could have, 
they would have killed every single person in the city. Every single one. They would have killed every single person. Satan hates you. But God in his grace and his mercy, his generosity and his compassion, he loves you. Satan, right at this very moment, is plotting for ways, means, to make sure that you no longer exist. And God, in his grace and his mercy, through the Lord Jesus Christ, is presenting a plan and creating a future where your fellowship is with him and your fellowship is with each other. James Arthur Baldwin wrote, quote, One of the reasons people cling to their hate so stubbornly is because they seem to sense that once hate is gone, they'll be forced to deal with their pain. Unquote. Isn't that good? When a person says, you mean God is inviting me to let go of the hatred? Well, what will be left? The stinging memory of how they hurt me. But John invites you to go one step further. It isn't just to be upset, bitter, or self-absorbed. It isn't even to be left with the pain. It's to allow the hatred and the pain to be substituted with a genuine, genuine relationship with God and with Jesus. Love is its own reward. Hate is its own punishment. You know that. It's an aphorism. Love is its own reward. Hate is its own punishment. Pain, fear, bitterness. Martin Luther King wisely and rightly said, hatred and bitterness can never cure the disease of fear. Only love can do that. Hatred paralyzes life. Love releases it. Hatred confuses life. Love harmonizes it. Hatred darkens life and love illuminates it. The great Puritan writer William Law wrote, quote, if I hate or despise any one man in the world, I hate something which God cannot hate and I despise that which he loves. And the Puritan writer was right. The moment that you give yourself permission to hate your brother or even to hate your enemy, you're doing something that's remarkable in its conceit. You are imagining a world where God loves everything that you love and he hates everything that you hate. That he loves everyone that you love and he hates everyone that you hate. But what if that's not true? What if God loves them? What if he cares about them? What if, what if he's thinking and acting in such a way to orchestrate this universe to bring them to a place of submission and humility and repentance? And he wants to offer them exactly what he's offered you. And there you have it. John invites us to embrace God's perspective on the plight of the human condition. 
That's what John is doing. He's asking you to think about these things in a way that will reflect the nature of God and the character of God. He invites us to embrace his perspective on the human condition, a way to face hate and face pain and face bitterness. The very famous preacher, Henry Emerson Fostick wrote, quote, hatred is like burning down your own house to get rid of a rat. Isn't that good? Imagine you saw a rat in the kitchen and you go, honey, burn the whole house down. Hey, how about if we just put out some traps? How about if we just get a little rat poison? Isn't there a way that we can deal with this problem where we, everybody gets to live? But that's what's happening in the world in which we live. More and more people are expressing more and more hatred. Paul uses this metaphor to describe the unbelieving world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, In whom the God of this world has blinded the minds of them which believed not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine in them. In Ephesians 4.18, Paul says, Having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God through the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, unquote. Paul knew that human beings are trapped. Their minds darkened. Their hearts darkened. Who's the person who hates his brother and walks in darkness? John wants you to understand that it's the unbeliever and the make-believer. John invites you to consider the person who says, I love God, I walk in the light, I read my Bible, and I hate your guts. He invites you to go, oh, I'm so sorry. Because what you're saying and feeling and experiencing is not consistent with what the Bible is saying. I'm going to also suggest to you that John is making a reference to the Gnostics, to the false teachers who have already left the assembly and who have already pronounced their judgment that you are ignorant and that you are blind and that you walk in darkness. In a very real sense, to hate is to choose darkness and reject fellowship. In a very real sense, it means to separate yourself from the presence of God and the presence of believers. And that's what John is asking you to consider. The person who loves God wants to be in his presence. The person who's experienced forgiveness of sin wants friendship and fellowship with each other. Again, another Bible writer said, true believers can be detected through their obedience to God and their knowledge of their own sinfulness and acceptance of forgiveness and a genuine love for each other. So John's giving us a way to evaluate, measure, judge. 
We live in a, in, a, in a world that is deeply divided in how it measures things. I mean, some of us live in inches and some of us live in millimeters, some miles and some kilometers. So how do we translate John's measurement for the authentic Christian experience and authentic Christian living? Is this something that we've just made up? Have we read into the text something that we want to be there? Or is this actually really what he's saying? Because listen to what he's saying. John is saying that whatever it means to be a Christ follower isn't simply living the language, it's living the life. It isn't simply in the person who says, I know him, but it has to be in the person who demonstrates that love and trust by a changed life and how they really relate to one another. So let's just follow his logic just for a moment. John speaks of keeping the commandments in verses 5 and 6. Not, not just simply talking, but walking in verses 6 and 7. As Jesus walked, not just simply saying, but loving in verses 8 through 11. And when we turn to Jesus to define love, when we look to him to be the definition of love and the description of love, we see Jesus' great love in Ephesians 2, 4, his inexpressible love in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. The love is free in Hosea 14, 4, inconceivable in Ephesians 3, 19, unselfish in 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. If you just turn two pages over to 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, it says, in this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Something happened. Something really happened. It's an unchanging love and an everlasting love and an unquenchable love. The love of God and the love of Christ is perfect, complete. And love never underestimates sin. It doesn't ignore it, it doesn't deny it, and it doesn't pretend like it's true. You know what love does? It seeks a solution to the brokenness. It seeks to find a solution so that you can have a right relationship with God and be right with each other. Love saw the guilt of sin and sought a basis of pardon. Love saw the alienation of sin and sought the grounds of reconciliation. Love saw the defilement of sin and sought a way of cleansing. Love saw the depravity of sin and sought a means of restoration. Love saw the enslavement of sin and sought an instrument of emancipation. Love saw the malady of sin and sought a balm of healing. Love saw the condemnation of sin and sought a way of life. Over and over and over again, love seeks, love seeks, love seeks. And in the end, it always finds what it's looking for. And love has always been looking for you. Love has always been looking for you. Duty makes us do things well. 
but love makes us do them beautifully. God didn't send Jesus because he's God and it's his job. He has to save you. He sought you. He bought you with his redeeming love. And now all of a sudden the tests begin to make sense. You mean the Bible speaks of being a Christian as a person whose life has been changed by Jesus? A person whose love is real because we've experienced his love? And we believe the truth because God has told us the truth and Jesus told us the truth and the apostles told us the truth. That's why next week, that's what we're going to be talking about. The truth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you're in the business of healing. Lord, we know that you're in the business of bringing us a way out of hatred. And Lord, for the person who's been struggling with hatred and bitterness and anger, selfishness. Lord, for the person who's holding on to their hate because they're afraid to face their pain. Because they'd rather hate than be afraid or be hurt. Lord, I pray that your love would come like a balm, like a healing remedy, that the emptiness and the brokenness and the hurt could disappear, that a person would really, really, really want to know that their life can change and their heart can change and that the way they treat each other can change. And we can experience love and hope and grace and mercy. And so, Heavenly Father, for the person who doesn't know you, but wants forgiveness so bad, Lord, I pray that they would invite you to come into their life. Lord, I pray that they would confess their sin and that Jesus is the Savior, that they would pray that simple prayer. Jesus, come into my life. Forgive my sin. I trust you and believe you. I believe that you can change me and fill my heart with love and give me a new life. Give me a hunger and a thirst to know you, to read my Bible, tell others what I've done, and to walk in the light instead of the darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.